Well, good morning. My name's Sanjay, as Al's mentioned, uh, and I'm part of the leadership team here at OCC. Um, just want to say welcome again, particularly if you're new or visiting from further afield. It's uh, wonderful to have you here, and I hope you enjoy your time with us, firstly, and that you meet with God, uh, more importantly. Um, so today we're going to be continuing our series, as you can see here, um, on Old Testament people, stories of God and his kingdom. Um, so we're going to be looking at Daniel to see what we can learn about the kingdom of God through his life. And you can see there, um, we're going to be looking at Daniel's faith and how it was in action. But first, I thought we'd just do a little interactive series recap to see who's been paying attention over the past few weeks. Um, So this is the fourth Sunday in our series, and that means we've had three uh, sermons on different Old Testament characters. And I wonder if anyone can shout out who else we've heard preached about. Abraham, okay, great, yeah, so two weeks back, Emmanuel preached to us about Abraham, Um, and what did we learn about Abraham? It's not a trick question, just think about Abraham's life, we learned about his faith and his obedience to God, Um, okay, so that was Abraham, anyone else? Naomi, okay, that was last week, so it should be fresher in our minds, What, what did Ruth speak to us about Naomi? Exactly. Yeah, so the woman who stuck with God. So she was faithful to God when, uh, when things looked down. And casting your minds back three weeks, Dan Kirk um, opened up looking at Moses. You might remember that. And helped us to see that when Moses encountered God, that changed his life forever. Um, and that he uh, grew then in relationship with God. We're going to pick up on some of those threads as we look at the life of Daniel. Um, So there's loads of aspects of the kingdom that I I just want to draw out there. And particularly today, we're going to be looking at Daniel's faith uh, in his life. Um, First thing I want to do, though, is set the scene by running through the book of Daniel quite quickly. Uh, It's it's a really interesting book. It's in two parts. Uh, We're going to move through this fast, but this will set the scene for what we say in in a little moment. So we read about Daniel in the helpfully titled book of Daniel written during the reign of several kings of Babylon. So this was about five to 600 years before Jesus came. Um, and in the first chapter, we have some historical context. So the people of Israel um, are surrounded by Babylon, who are their enemy, and uh, Babylon besieged them. And it says the Lord gave uh, Israel into Babylon's hand. Um, And as Babylon take over Israel, they also take some young men. So we read that Daniel and several of his friends, other outstanding young men, are taken to captivity in Babylon. So this might be like our our best and brightest, some of our students perhaps, some of the band today, um, taken by um, an enemy land. And we don't really have the same sense of enemy lands, but just just try and imagine. So this is, um, you know, perhaps think of two lands locked in, long-term conflict with each other. So this would be one invading the other and taking their, their royal sons to their, back to their land, um, tearing them away from their context, away from their home, away from their families, and educating them in the way of Babylon. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a bad day, right? So we've got these uh, incredible young men who are, who are taken out of their home, um, and really all that they have is each other, and they have their faith in God. Um, so, so Daniel and his friends land in, in Babylon, and 
they're, they're meant to be educated, they're meant to be brought up in, in the way of Babylon. They were probably 15 or 16 when they were, when they were taken. Um, so they, they start to make faithful decisions. We read in, in Daniel 1 that um, Daniel and his three friends choose not to eat the luxurious food that they're offered, um, and they start to emerge as wise counsellors to the Babylonian king, uh, actually wiser than the native Babylonians. So the other Jews who were brought into captivity are also there, but these four start to emerge um, as, as wise and intelligent and just remarkable young men in, in that kingdom. Um, their faithfulness to God then starts to be tested. So several kings have dreams and visions um, which need interpretation. Um, and then these kings start to form decrees as well, which outlaw faithfulness to God. Um, and yet these young men remain faithful um, in spite of great threats to their personal safety. So they, they grow up, they gain influence, years go by, um, and through, uh, through these events, they're promoted to greater and greater authority in the, in the kingdom of Babylon. Um, and some kings of Babylon even give praise to the God of Israel through the faithful witness of, uh, of, of these men. So just to run through the structure, so first, first we have the introduction in chapter 1. In chapter 2... Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a man and um, asks for an interpretation. We're going to zoom in on this passage a little bit later on. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar gives a decree um, that people should pray to him, and if they don't, they'll be thrown into a furnace. Uh, Daniel's three friends get thrown into the furnace, and we see God's salvation for them. In chapter 4, the king has another dream. Uh, Daniel interprets it, and the king is then humiliated, comes to repentance, and God saves him. In chapter 5, and this is a parallel of chapter 4, another king has a feast and God speaks again, not through a dream, but through a vision. He writes on the wall and, and again there's a humiliation of this king. But unlike in chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar repents and turns around, um, this king doesn't repent and comes to a sorry end. In chapter 6, there's another decree. You can see a parallel with chapter 3 here. Um, and, and this is the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den, which we're also going to look at. Um, so Daniel uh, refuses to pray to the king, is thrown into a lion's den, and again sees God's salvation work itself out for him. And then in chapter 7, we see um, another king have a, have a vision, um, and we'll, we'll come back and just see, see some of the, the threads that we can pick up there. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about uh, chapters 8 to 12. Um, there's a whole um, raft of visions of the future that Daniel receives, which are, which are fascinating, and it's been a joy to actually read up on, on what's going on in, in those chapters. So if you're interested or confused by those, do grab me later and, and ask what, what they're all about. Um, but I want to draw three themes out of, out of this structure. So the first, you can see chapters 2 and chapter 7. There's a theme that emerges there. So in each of the dreams or visions, there's kingdoms that come and go, but in each vision, there's a kingdom, the kingdom of God emerges um, in Daniel chapter 2 as a stone, and in Daniel chapter 7 as a, as a kingdom, which ultimately come and bring peace and justice to the world, and these kingdoms are established forever. In chapters 3 and 6, we can see um, that God saves his people, so first saves these three from the fiery furnace, and then saves Daniel from the lion's den, um, as they're faithful to him in the midst of persecution. And then the final theme I want to draw on is, um, so kings seek their own gain. We've got these two kings who try to glorify themselves, 
Um, and yet God opposes the proud and give, gives grace to those who humble themselves. So these are the three themes that, uh, that I want to pick up on. Um, kings seek their own gain, and God opposes the proud but give, gives grace to those who humble themselves. Secondly, that God saves his people um, as they're faithful to him. And thirdly, that there's a series of kingdoms, but ultimately God will come to establish his kingdom. These are the three themes that emerge as we read the book of Daniel. Um, So with that in mind, with those big picture themes, I just want to zoom in on two particular passages uh, where we see how kingdom living worked out in Daniel's life. So firstly, we're going to read a passage from Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So we know from the description given in verse 4 that Daniel was a young man, um, no physical defects, it's not bad, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, uh, well-informed, quick to understand. He, he had a lot going for him, right? He was gifted, he was intelligent, he was handsome, he was sharp. He sounds like a bit of a, bit of a dream guy. So it's not a surprise that they, that they plucked him out of Israel and, and took him into Babylon. I wonder, I wonder if, we, if we know people like that. He sounds like the guy who, you know, we, we all go home from school one summer and come back and suddenly there's just one guy who's suddenly got really cool. You just think, that, that, was what, that was a bit what Daniel was like. He had a lot going for him um, and started to emerge uh, with his four friends. So um, they were all chosen and then Daniel and his four friends are the only Israelites who are named. And then in verse 8, uh, if we can just flip back to that, um, in verse 8 it says... But Daniel, but Daniel resolved that he would not, he resolved not to defile himself. So already we have Daniel emerging as, as a bit of a leader among these. So he's emerging as unique, um, a leader among the four. And to see why, I just want to zoom in on a, on a second passage from Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what, they had, what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Nice guy. So um, I'm, I'm going to skip over a bit, but I'll explain what happens. It's just quite a long chunk and I don't want to read it all. So the king flatly refuses to tell these wise men what his 
dream was. And, I mean, the, the reasonable reply from the astrologers is there's not a man on earth who can do this, who can meet your demand. Um, no one can show it to the king except the gods, and they know that the gods' dwelling is not with flesh. So the king then gets angry and, uh, in a slightly irrational move, orders all the wise men to be killed, okay? um, the Babylonians and the Israelites. So Dan- the first Daniel hears of this seems to be when some people knock on his door to kill him. Um, and he, again, quite understandably, asks what's going on, that they want to kill him and the king's so angry. So Daniel requests to see the king, um, and the king uh, grants him his request. So we pick up the story again at verse 17. So this is Daniel having understood what the king wants. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. So then Daniel goes into the king and tells him this interpretation. Um, That not only saves Daniel, it also saves Daniel's friends. It also seems to save the wise men of Babylon because we read about them later. Um, And it's unlikely that they trained up a whole other raft of wise men because of of this king. And the chapter ends with these four guys being promoted again to high positions in Babylon. And Daniel becomes the ruler of the entire province of Babylon. Pretty high position. So we're going to look at one hallmark of the Christian life that we can learn from just this early period in in Daniel's life and see how we can apply it to our lives in four ways. So the hallmark of Daniel's life that I want to pick up on is faith. If we could have the the, back to the PowerPoint. Daniel demonstrates remarkable faith. As you read through the book, it's clear that Daniel is convinced about some things about God. He's convinced that God's good, and that God will protect him. Um, we've just read in the, in the previous chapter, he says, um, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So he knows where it's come from. He knows that even though he's in, this, he's in Babylon and there's this king over him, he's, um, he, he knows that actually God is sovereign. God's the king of kings over and above the king in in Babylon. So can we just have the PowerPoint back up? It's just on the way, perfect. Um, So the themes, I'm just going to jump back to the themes that emerged. So remember the structure of the book of Daniel? We said kings seek their own gain uh, and God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We said God saves his people in spite of persecution when they're faithful to him. And we said that there's a series of kingdoms, Babylon being one of them, Uh, But ultimately, God's kingdom is going to come. And when it does, it's going to bring justice and peace to the world. And it's going to last forever. So Daniel believes these things. Um, But as I I was reflecting on Daniel's faith, it struck me that the the Bible doesn't talk about faith as believing things. It, It talks about faith a little bit differently. So I just want to take us through a little view of what the Bible says about faith. And when the slides come on, they'll, they'll help. Um, there's some nice pictures, but, uh, but we can do it without for now. 
Um, so the biblical view of faith, um, one of the key passages is in Hebrews chapter 11. So Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it then goes on to list a whole range of faithful people, some of whom we've heard about in this series already. It talks about Abel, it talks about Enoch, it talks about Abraham. Um, so here are the three things. Kingdoms will come and go, God saves his people, uh, and God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So in Hebrews it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then it goes on, it says, by faith, and it doesn't talk about what they believed. This really struck me. It was talking about faith, and we normally think about faith as, as what we believe. But it says, by faith, it says, Abel offered a sacrifice. It says, Noah constructed an ark. It says, Abraham obeyed and went out from his land. It, it's got a whole range of activities. So there's something, there's something else going on with faith that is active. So this tells me that the key... The, the key to faith isn't, is, is partly what we believe, but it's also about what we do based on that belief. So I would say to you that faith isn't just about what you believe, it's about what you do based on that conviction. And we see the same reality in, uh, in the book of James. Um, so you may be familiar with the passage. It talks about um, faith by itself, not accompanied by action, is dead. And I really love how the message puts it. It says... Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that the works are works of faith? And then I love this bit. The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. It's that mesh of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. So I want to suggest to you that faith is more than agreeing with God. It's more than just getting our heads around some true facts about God. It's, it's practical. I just want to read a little extract from, from this book. It's by an American lawyer called Bob Goff. Um, and he says... Jesus told his friends if they wanted to be like him, they needed to love their neighbours and they needed to love difficult people. This sounds so familiar that I'm tempted to just agree with Jesus and move on, but Jesus doesn't want us merely to agree with him. In fact, I can't think of a single time he gathered his friends around him and said, guys, I just want you to agree with me. He wants us to do what he said. And he said he wants us to love everybody. So, so we can see from these two sort of prominent passages about faith in the Bible is that faith is more than just believing or agreeing with God. It's, it's about what we do. So I want to suggest a definition of faith as practical decision-making based on a conviction about who God is. A practical, practical decision-making based on a conviction of who God is. So it follows that we should then look at Daniel's actions, some of the ways he lived out his faith to understand what was really going on with it. And I want to look at four really practical actions that Daniel explored uh, based on his conviction about who God is. So the first I want to look at is prayer. Daniel's faith is worked out consistently through prayer. 
Daniel prayed when he had much to gain. He needed interpretation from God of the dream to keep himself and his friends alive. I think we can agree that that's a, that's a big prayer request. That's a, that's a high-stakes prayer. God, Daniel prayed when he needed God to come through for him. Um, and I think we can, we can be quite good at that type of prayer when we need something from God, when the stakes are really high. Um, we can be quite quick to pray. But Daniel also prayed when he had much to lose. In a later chapter, the, the decree that the king makes is that it's illegal to pray. And yet, Daniel goes to the secret place. I want to suggest that Daniel had some options there. He was influential by this stage. He had powerful friends. He had direct access to the king. And yet when this decree comes, which he knew was unjust, his line of action wasn't to go and try and influence the king or to go and try and convince his friends that this wasn't the right way. His line of action was to pray. And he had a lot to lose. He had people seeking to destroy him and ended up getting thrown in a den of lions. So Daniel's response to the situation was not to defend his situation, not to seek favor, not to try and angle to change the situation. He went to the place of prayer to fight his battles. So his belief in God led him to believe that the most effective area, arena for, prayer, for, for him to fight in was in the secret place, not out in the open. Daniel's faith worked itself out in prayer, both in the good times and the bad when others around him really needed him to pray, when their lives depended on it, but also when others around him would have kind of preferred if he didn't pray. You know, these were his friends, and, you know, the the risks, the stakes were high. So I want to ask, are you fighting your battles with prayer? When things get tough, do you use your influence to change them? Do you try and angle to, to see what you can do in the situation? Or do you go to the secret place and contend with God in prayer? I think there's an aspect of Daniel's faith that we can learn from in prayer. The second aspect I want to draw out is uh, in Daniel's community. Daniel's faith is borne out by his interaction with his community. And by community, I mean his closest band of brothers, who were Jews like him, set apart as he was. He goes to them in chapter 2, verse 17, which we just read. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. A big prayer request, high stakes. Daniel's response to this challenge, this issue, is not to go alone. He goes to his community who also trusted God, and, and they seek the Lord together. So Daniel's community is, uh, is his friends, um, his, his close friends who believe God. But I, I want to clarify that Daniel was no monk. He, was, he, he wasn't living out in a monastery somewhere and, and every moment of his life spent with these people. He, he was fluent in Babylonian language. He was able to speak into their pressing cultural issues, their social issues, the, the most intimate problems that the king was having. He became influential and honored in Babylon. He, he didn't live a life of monasticism, sort of withdrawn from the world. He was actively engaged in, in culture and community. And yet, he knew who his true community was. When the stakes got really, really high, he knew to retreat back into this community and seek God together. So the question I want to ask from this is, who are you doing life with? 
Do you have a band of brothers and sisters to whom you go to pray when the stakes are highest? This is part of how Daniel's faith worked itself out. And remember in Hebrews, the full meaning of believe includes his action. It's the mesh of believing and acting. So is your, is your faith working itself out in, in this particular action of community? The third area I want to draw out is what I call set-apart living. Daniel's faith is first borne out. The first glimpse we have of it is in his approach to the food of Babylon. Daniel sees that in order to remain true to God, there's a decision that he needs to make to abstain, to hold back from certain enjoyable things that Babylon would offer him. And it says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Now remember, Daniel and his friends were gaining authority and favor in this foreign land. Um, and, And they weren't the only Israelites there. There were a whole bunch of others, but we just read that Daniel and his, four friend, and his three friends abstained from the food. I want to suggest to you that Daniel's bar for set-apart living wasn't defined by what everyone else around him was doing. He got his directions from God. He was, he was convicted, he resolved not to eat this food so I wonder what this looks like for us. It, it, could, it could involve refraining from certain foods. It could, it could be refraining from certain types of entertainment. It could be taking on some things. It could be you know, engaging in fostering and adoption. It could, the, the question here is, how does, how does our life live up to this standard of set-apart living that, that God would have us live to? Um, and I want to suggest that the bar we take for that should come from the Bible, should come from God himself, um, by all means, use inspirational Christians around you to, to take a cue from them. But, but do seek God for how he's calling us to live a set-apart life, a holy life. So that, that, was, that was Daniel's reality, but I wonder what that is for today. What, what will we resolve to do to live a set-apart life? And then finally, I just want to draw out um, this thing of enduring hope. So Daniel and his comrades live in Babylon for the whole of Israel's Babylonian captivity, which is over 70 years. So these events that we've looked at of of abstaining from food when he was about 15 or 16 through to um, the fiery furnace and the lion's den, that probably happened towards the end of his life, near near the age of of 70. And yet Daniel, we see that he had a daily habit of prayer given that he ran back to the secret place of prayer when, when the stakes were high. This, this faith sustained Daniel. And I'd suggest that Daniel actually had several reasons for his hope not to endure. We know the end of the story. Daniel didn't. Daniel was in exile. He had no idea when the exile would end. He had been taken from his family, taken from his home. Um, he was apart from his land. And for an Israelite to be apart from their land meant being sort of pulled out of the promise that God had given to Abraham, this covenant promise that they would have a place to belong and where God could dwell with them. He'd been, he'd been pulled out of that. So this was, this was a hard situation. And yet Daniel continued in faithfulness to God and continued in hope. Secondly, I'd suggest that uh, he had another reason to lose hope. Um, Daniel serves under four kings and he was an advisor to each one. And strangely, if you read through the book, um, each king seems to completely forget that Daniel's there. Um, 
they, they completely forget that there's this remarkable guy called Daniel who in past kingdoms, in under past kings, has successfully interpreted dreams that were just mysterious to them and has saved legions of wise men from the king killing them. I think they need a category in their database for people who have saved past Babylonian kings from an untimely death by interpreting feverishly hard dreams and or visions which the king wouldn't even tell them. And I think Daniel would be the only guy on the list. And yet they seem to forget about him. Um, so in chapter 5, there's a, there's a quite remarkable s- scene where God writes on the wall and there's a message to this, um, to this king. And it says the king was greatly alarmed and then the queen came in and declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him, etc., etc., etc. Because an excellent spirit and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles was found in this Daniel. Now let Daniel be called. Good plan. Let's call Daniel. He might do it again. So I can imagine that would have been fairly frustrating for Daniel. He's, he's got this gift. He's able to, to see into these mysteries of dreams and visions. And yet he keeps, he keeps getting forgotten about. I, you know, I think we, some of us will know how that feels to be maybe underappreciated at work. And uh, you know, the thing that we've done so well before, we're, we're not asked to do it again. Um, and yet Daniel continues to serve faithfully. He doesn't grumble when he's called in to interpret this next dream. He just gets on with it, seeks God, and God again gives him, uh, gives him the interpretation. And finally, we see throughout Daniel that he didn't even understand some of the visions he received. In, in chapters 8, 8 to 12, we, we, we hear about a coming age with great trial, great tribulation for the people of God. And, um, and scholars have uh, have disagreed on what periods of history those uh, visions refer to. Um, we also read that Daniel himself in chapter 7 was alarmed. Um, he, he was alarmed. He, he didn't know what these meant. Um, but then in chapter 12, Daniel says, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And the Lord said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So Daniel was able to trust in God, even when, even when he was underappreciated, even though he didn't see the end of the story, uh, even though he, um, he, he didn't understand some of what was going on with him. And yet he had this enduring hope that there would be this kingdom that would come, that would never end, and that would bring peace and would bring justice. So that's what I want to draw out of, uh, of Daniel's life. I want to just draw these, draw these four questions, and I'm just going to leave them up, to, up there. Um, I think it's fair to, fair to assume that if we can see elements of kingdom life in Daniel's life, we should be able to see those expressed even more fully when Jesus comes. And, um, and Daniel's life was a foretaste, I want to suggest, of some of the aspects of kingdom living we saw in in Jesus. So Daniel's prophecies foretold this kingdom, but his life is also a foretaste of, of this greater king, this Jesus, who was to come. A great king, this Jesus, who would sit at the right hand of God himself. That, that line comes out of one of Daniel's visions. A great kingdom which would never end. 
Um, and this great king would also descend into a pit of death, like Daniel did, um, would be sent there by a ruler who knew he was innocent, uh, and yet couldn't, respond, couldn't resist the public pressure on him to accuse this innocent man. This great king that was to come, like Daniel, would have a large sto- stone rolled in front of that pit and be left there for dead. This great king that was to come would also have a hopeful friend come look for them one morning. And this great king that was to come would also emerge from that pit unconsumed and victorious, testifying to their faith and to the fact that they were sent of God. So we can learn from the life of Daniel that the life of faith is not a life of agreeing with facts or statements about God, The life of faith is one of engagement with the world based on a foundation of prayer, rooted in community, living a set-apart life, distinctive, and hopeful in the face of trials. This is faith in action. And in living this faith, we foresee the kingdom of God coming in all its fullness when the Son of Man returns again to usher it in fully. So I want to leave you with some questions Are you fighting your battles with prayer? Who are you doing life with? What does set-apart living look like in your life? And do you have enduring hope? There's a big question that gathers these all together, which is, is your faith active? Remember James, how James put it. It's the mesh of believing and acting. So does your faith include your action? And are your believing and your acting meshed together?